Hello, this is Gary Wells, and you are listening to The American Farewell. Welcome to The American Farewell podcast. The focus of this podcast is to chronicle the gradual fragmentation of this country along seemingly intractable partitions as we move through what might be described as an existential crisis of the American identity. Who are we as a nation? Where are we going? And how did we get here? Is this where we're supposed to be? Without getting too dark and moody about it, we will be looking back at what the people who were involved with the formation of this country intended when they were setting up this nation, and where we are at today as it relates to those original goals. We will attempt to be as accurate as possible when referencing historical records, as fair as we can be in chronicling what is happening today, and be as sage as we can be in forecasting the future. All with a little humor thrown in. Please don't take anything in these podcasts too seriously, folks. It's just a podcast. Without further ado, Episode 1, A Break from Tradition. It's Monday, the 25th of April, 2022. On today's podcast, we will be talking about the desire held by the people who started this nation to leave a familiar system of governance which was reliant on a monarchy to entertain a modern variant of an old ideal. From the end of the 15th century through the 18th century, the people trying to colonize what they saw as a new world were mostly from kingdoms ruled by monarchies. Spain, Portugal, England, France. The only real standout was the Republic of the Seven United Netherlands, or, as we know them, the Dutch. This was a federal republic, a potent but small republic that relied heavily on the strength of its merchant enterprises around the world. Although they were subject under one crown or another, many of the folks who were residents of the colonies on this new continent were well-versed in so-called classical writings from ancient Greece, where the concept of democracy, or rule by the people, had been tried. However, those early attempts at democracy did not make it out of the era of antiquity for multiple reasons. The rule by one person under force of arms did. This is where monarchies come in. If you were to look at the history of much of the world, there have been a lot of wars and conquests and revolutions to either preserve monarchies to grow a kingdom's territorial holdings, or to establish a new line of royalty. Some armed conflicts were brief, some were back-and-forth challenges that lasted for generations. In the end, though, someone would always claim victory. Since soldiers generally don't shift easily into administrative work, whichever group claimed victory at the cessation of armed conflict would inevitably give the mantle of executive powers to the peer among them who was the greatest champion for the ideals, the principles, and property holdings that had been fought for, or to the person who most enjoyed making routine decisions, the king, or tsar, or shah, or whatever. In any case, the installation of a leader through force of arms, or merely by threat of force, was the routine around the world for a long time. As was the case with most monarchies, the king, and sometimes the queen, of England was the inheritor of the position of singular authority, established through a series of military conquests and beneficial arranged marriages that goes back well over a thousand years. The British monarchy, like most kings, also claimed to be ordained from on high by God. 
although earlier rulers, particularly in Rome and Egypt, claimed that they were divine themselves, the British kings and queens merely asserted that they were chosen by providence. Clearly, this was a ruse intended to quiet discontent. If God wanted this or that person to be king, then to defy the king was to defy God. In spite of this, through the centuries there had been challenges and adjustments to the authority of the crown, sometimes through revolutionary measures. This is not surprising. After all, if a king could be installed through force of arms, they could also be removed by force of arms, right? Within the history of England, we have the Glorious Revolution, Oliver Cromwell and the Rump Parliament, the English Civil War, and the signing of the Magna Carta by King John, who is so humorously portrayed by Disney as a thumb-sucking, maneless lion. I love that character. Nevertheless, the point is that throughout the past millennia, Restrictions have been placed on the supremacy of the crown. For example, the queen nowadays has far fewer options to do things unilaterally than the kings of the 1700s. Even so, the king or queen has been able to exercise whatever power they have until the end of their days. Unfortunately, the king or queen did not always have the best interests of the people at the top of their list of things to be concerned with. And when they did, it was not always the people from the same territory and certainly not every person of the kingdom. You see, throughout the colonial era, you might have a king who is also part of the Dutch nobility, or a king with claims to parts of France. Then there were the struggles between Catholic and Protestant branches of the royal family. It was messy. Well, all of this jumble of authority did not sit well with the colonials. They were clearly being treated as bargaining chips or just revenue generators in some great European game. So, some of them wanted to change how they were being treated, or even to get out from under the rule of a king. But how do you do that? How do you get out from under an authoritarian figure? Well, you ask and beg and plead and threaten for greater autonomy. At least, that's what the colonials did for years, as exemplified by the works of the First Continental Congress. When they did not receive the appropriate treatment or autonomy which they so desperately sought, they outright declared independence. Feel free to picture Michael Scott declaring bankruptcy here. It was probably just like that. While they were dealing from the fallout of that declaration, the colonials had to figure out what they would have if not a monarchy. More than a handful insisted they should remain subjects of the crown, but they were clearly not in the majority. Among the so-called founding fathers, the most popular idea at the beginning was to have a confederation of states, with each state run by the citizens of their state in the manner that they saw fit. Congress would simply be there as the place where the representatives of the states could come together and hash things out once in a while. This concept was based to a degree on the contemporary realities of the Federation of the Netherlands we mentioned. At the same time, the absence of a central authority figure borrowed heavily from the ideas of the old democracies of ancient Greece. However, in doing this, the colonials neglected to learn the lesson of the ancient democracies. As mentioned before, the ancient democracies had failed. That bears repeating. Previous historical attempts to have a land ruled by the people failed. One reason they failed were that these early democracies were generally small and local, city-states like Athens and Sparta. 
They had a much smaller area to draw resources from, meaning they were susceptible to economic influences outside their sphere of control, and they were not adequately suited to deal separately with the eventual pressure from stronger powers outside of the individual democracies. Also, the city-states had no unifying presence to rally them all together when one or the other was threatened. In various cases, they actually fought among themselves, as there was also no person or status designed to adequately handle disagreements between these tiny democracies. At the time of the 13 colonies, it would have been like South Carolina threatening to take up arms against Massachusetts for some perceived slight. That would be messy, wouldn't it? Furthermore, it was the intent of these ancient democracies to have every citizen, that is, every Greek male adult who was not a slave, to vote on every single law. Can you imagine that? Every citizen voting on every single law. We're lucky to have 20% turnout for votes on ballot initiatives nowadays. Obviously, the Greek structure of democracy eventually resulted in a much smaller group of politically inclined citizens, known as an oligarchy, doing all of the voting and thereby calling all of the shots. The rest of the citizens were too busy going about their regular business. Sound familiar? In the long run, the absolute lack of a central approved executive authority who could administer business equitably and in a timely manner, and who could also rally the individual clusters into a union where needed for a common defense, ended up being the Achilles heel of these old democracies. And this was proven to be the weakness of the original government over the 13 colonies as well. It has been recorded that the Continental Army faced disaster on several occasions when fighting against the army of the king, owing to the lack of a federal administration over procurement and distribution of weapons and supplies. The need for an executive branch of government became a matter to be resolved in the Second Continental Congress. But again, the question arose, how do you hand over such authority in a democracy. Elections to fill government posts were not an entirely new concept, but for the most part, elections had been reserved to seat members of the assembly or parliament or whatever the legislative branch of a government was going to be. The plan for the public, again, male adult citizens who were not slaves, to elect the person who would fill the role of the chief executive authority was a break from the monarchical system of lifelong prerogative followed up by replacement only by inheritance or the sword. The further design to grant such a person a term of limited duration in which they would voluntarily cede their authority after losing an election was an ideal that was even further afield from the experience that almost anyone had had at that point. Yet, that's what we started with when the United States of America came into existence. An executive authority who did not rely on family lineage or strength of arms or the expressed approval of providence, but was instead selected in a roundabout way by the people to serve a limited term. It would take a pretty phenomenal character to be handed the reins of power and then willingly give them back after they lost an election. If every single president was expected to do that, it would take an unbelievable streak of finding persons who were assertive enough to want to take up the reins of authority, but who were nevertheless humble enough and properly subservient to the will of the voters to give them back. This could probably only be done at all with the establishment of a precedent. That's where good old George Washington came in. By many accounts, he didn't even want to be president so much in the first place. 
As we said, a lot of soldiers don't like to take on administrative roles. That lack of kingly ambition from President Number 1 worked in our favor in the long run. From that time, the United States of America has gone through 59 presidential elections, resulting in 45 men filling the office of president, with 32 peaceful transitions in the executive office after an election, and 13 transitions due to the death of the current officeholder. Now, that latter number is particularly amazing. Previously, the unexpected death of the monarch by illness or assassination was often taken as an opportunity for someone else to exercise a claim on the crown. However, because the newly ordered office of the President of the United States was just that, an office to be held by a duly elected officer, the replacements followed a prescribed order of replacement, even in the event of the abrupt departure of the sitting executive. Unlike previous monarchies, there was to be no rising up to contest the results of a transition, whether by election or by sudden death of the officeholder. Until very recently. We'll get into that in greater detail some other time. Throughout the years, each president would handle their approach differently. Some were very laid back, some took the bully pulpit, and more than a few tried to make a difference but were stonewalled by Congress or the courts. That whole balance of power thing, such a drag. The gradual trend, however, has been an expansion of presidential authority. After all, the Constitution offers few specific restraints on the ability of the president to act, with a key phrase in Article 2, Section 3, reading, in part, He shall take care that the laws be faithfully executed. There it is. That's the clause that essentially says, Do what thou will. Sure, there are stated limitations on some things, like declaring war and making treaties, but even those restraints have been eroded or bypassed over time. Meanwhile, there have been natural catastrophes and wars and economic disasters and all manner of things which are often best handled by a quick, strong response. While the Congress moves in a cumbersome, deliberative manner to address such things, it is the administrative offices under the president who deliver the aid or command the troops or direct resources. In other words, the president and the offices under his administration are often seen as the people who get things done in these instances. The problem with allowing the president to expand their de facto authority over the nation is that once you let them start, it's hard to rein it back in. For example, nowhere in the Constitution does it allow the U.S. president to move permanently requisitioned troops around, across, between, and within autonomous nations around the world that we are not in a declared war with. Yet, that is exactly what presidents have been doing for a long time now. Another example is the U.S. Department of Agriculture, which has an enormous range of powers over many areas of the United States, which allows it to establish rules and set penalties and direct support in ways that do not need approval from Congress just the president. And let's not even get started on the Department of Homeland Defense. I was using air quotes there in case you didn't notice. Yet again, Congress just handed over to the office of the president broad discretionary powers that limit the rights of citizens. In a true democracy, it's supposed to be the other way around. As we review all of this, it is easy to see that we have been sliding back to having a government that relies more and more on a singular authority that governs through fiat rather than through collaboration, just as a king of olden times would rule. 
You might wonder why Americans have not reacted more strongly to this. Well, for one thing, there's that benefit of having a government that can respond quickly in a variety of emergencies, which was mentioned before. Here's another thing to consider. The old feelings about a monarchy have not been all bad. There's something quasi-mythical about a monarchy that is enchanting. A noble king or queen deigning to rule benevolently over the masses, fairy tale weddings which capture our attention in ways that are hard to describe, and the steadiness of a monarch like Queen Elizabeth II, who has been on the throne for 70 years. That may feel comfortably stable, refreshing even, to Americans who are called on every four years to construct a personal rationale that would compel us to vote for or against someone. When we are told time after time after time that we have to go vote for this idiot over that jerk, as we are instructed to think of them, it creates a pattern whereby we regret election results almost immediately and long for a return to something better, or at least different. Most of the time, most of the citizenry does not even feel satisfied about who is running the country, and we can't wait for the appointed time to kick them out. As a result... What had been arguably the chief motive for breaking away from England, that is, to get out from under a crown who could dictate rules of governance without recourse to the people who are being governed, is no longer seen as such a bad thing. There are citizens of this country who want a strong, singular, irremovable authority who will get things done rather than things being handled by a bureaucratic processes that take on forever and require compromise. Furthermore, the feeling that whoever gets elected president must have been selected by providence never fully went away for some people. Although the government has generally been organized along secular lines, where the final arbiter is the will of the people, okay, try not to laugh at that. The wish by many to have an indisputable moral authority is still present. When the person holding the office of the president invokes God while claiming that what they are doing is for the benefit of the people, they are following precisely the age-old model of kings and queens. In the final analysis, the role of the president of the United States of America has shifted closer to the position of a monarch that has sweeping authoritative powers and is not to be questioned. This is clearly not what the Founding Fathers intended, but it is where we are at today. One must then consider what, if anything, should be done about that. Are we to just go along with creeping authoritarianism? How would we now rein in a president who overreaches in their authority? Who does that? Their closest advisors? Congress? A mob whose ideology is bursting through their veins? In the past, we could at least count on the removal of any president through routine elections. But now, we have a precedent whereby even that intrusion on executive authority will be challenged by his or her supporters. Perhaps we're just going to collectively let things happen as we watch from the sidelines, anesthetized by casual comforts and endless forms of entertainment, until we reach the point of living under a new type of king. Or, perhaps, we can actively participate in the manner of our governance and revisit the law of the land and scribble down a few more restraints on our nation's executive authority. Only time will tell which path we take, but it does seem that we are collectively standing at a juncture 
on this matter. Thanks for joining us today. Coming up soon in future podcasts, the other reasons that we had for starting a new nation, taxes and the lack of representation. Oh boy, those are going to be fun. You have been listening to The American Farewell with Gary Wells. Until next time, keep dreaming, America.